we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you've opened up your Bible or your scripture journal and you're looking at this uh, first chapter of Ecclesiastes starting with uh, verse 12. Uh, and we, we've said that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. If you've done a little digging this week, you may have found out there's some debate as to is this really Solomon or is it a, a kind of a Solomon-like figure in the wisdom tradition. And uh, honestly, I don't think it really matters all that much. Uh, the way it's being presented is it's and it's the king, it's the wise, uh, wisest uh, man on earth kind of a, a vibe that's coming off of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to just kind of, the way we're going to talk about it is that it's Solomon. Solomon is the one who's, who's writing this and he's making observations about life under the sun, as in the observable life, what I can see with my eyes and, and put under a microscope and observe. Uh, this is life under the sun and his uh, conclusions throughout the book are going to be that, that if, if all there is is life under the sun, that life is vanity. Uh, life is hevel. It's this uh, Hebrew word that really means mist or smoke, and uh, it, he's communicating just the, the temporal nature, the empty nature, the vain, meaningless nature uh, of life as we experience it. And I think our, our uh, the way that we want to kind of uh, push back on Solomon and say, you're just a cynical old man. Actually, life is very meaningful. I don't know what you're talking about. And I think Solomon's answer to us and the answer that he gives us in the book of Ecclesiastes is he doubles down. And so the, throughout this whole book, he's making his argument um, that if, if all there is is life under the sun, that life is absolutely um, meaningless. And he's doing that not to depress us, but to push us to life beyond the sun. And so this is, this is really, you know, every, every one of these sermons, uh, is, it will be an opportunity to consider life under the sun and then go uh, beyond the sun. And so in the first 11 verses that we looked at last week, there was really no mention of God. It was, it was just observations about life under the sun and conclusions about the vain nature of life under the sun. And then in verse 12, or, or verse 13 here, uh, we get to actually hear him for the first time talk about God. So he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under, the, uh, under heaven it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So after his like diatribe of the first 11 verses of how life is cyclical in nature and meaningless and there's no satisfaction and there's no legacy, he mentions God. And it makes sense in wisdom literature that uh, he would be going to God because the understanding of all wisdom literature is that God is the beginning of all wisdom. That if you're going to be a wise person, you're going to begin with God. Uh, an example verse, many of you prob probably know this verse of Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So you can can kind of get that sense that if you want to be wise, you're going to have to go to the source, the all-wise God. And there is where you find uh, the beginning of wisdom. And this is, this is where Solomon's going in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, in verse 13, search out by, all, by wisdom all that is done under heaven. All right? So think about this. He's been talking about under the sun and now he's shifting to under the heaven. So, so he's taking off his kind of secularist hat of, well, all there is is under the sun. And now he's putting on his theological hat and he's saying, no, there's actually more to uh, reality than what you can uh, see. 
But what is he finding when he takes that, that kind of put, takes the lid off and considers life under heaven? It's not what we, we, we would expect, especially if uh, you're an American Christian, right? I, it, it caused me to think about um, in the early days of Campus Crusade, they had what they called the four spiritual laws, and they used that to share the gospel with people. It's very, very helpful, very effective. Many people came to faith in Christ through this tool. But the first law was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That, that was the, 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 the law number one. And it, it made me laugh as I thought about that in contrast to sort of Solomon's first uh, spiritual law where he says it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, right? And again, you, you want to say, oh, you're just a cynical old man, Solomon, that, that, that we really have to go to the rest of the Bible. We're going to correct you. We, we're going we're to correct you with the victorious Christian life uh, kind of, of an idea. Uh, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what Solomon is doing here is he's pointing to the radical sovereignty, the utter sovereignty uh, of God. He's saying not only that he's seen it all, but that God is in control of all, right? He's seen it all, good and bad, and God is in control of good and bad. He's maintaining that God is sovereign over everything. And we may say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to think about God like that, that he's somehow in control of the good uh, and the bad, that we uh, would, would rather just think, well, he's in control of the good. And if that's, what we're in, is that, if that's the way we're thinking, then we're kind of thinking of God as a divine chess player. And uh, I'm kind of stealing this illustration from Professor James Anderson, but he says, you know, if you think this way, you think God is this master chess player, and he doesn't have control over humans, he doesn't have control over evil, but he can outplay humans and outplay evil at every turn. And so whatever move they make, uh, he makes a different move, and then eventually his moves are so perfect that at the end he actually gets what he wants. But he's not in control of evil, he's not in control of human beings. The problem with that is that that's really not the God of the Bible. That, that's not how he's described. In the wisdom literature, in the prophets, even in the New Testament, right? Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Uh, Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Uh, Isaiah 46. These are just examples. We could, we, could, we could really go to many, many examples, but here's another one. And this is to Israel who's about to go into exile. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Seems to indicate there's more to, to God's uh, power than just foreknowledge. He actually is foreordaining, right? His foreknowledge also includes the foreordaining of the future. And again, you might say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Like that was kind of kind of a God 1.0 and now we get the New Testament God 2.0 and he's, he's not ultimately sovereign like that. And I, that's not the case, right? There's so many places in the New Testament that you can see this as well. 
for instance, Jesus in Matthew 6 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So there, even Jesus is he's describing this utter sovereignty of God. Now there, we're, we're like, oh, I like that. That makes me feel good, like God's taking care of me. But, but he's like taking care of the diet of small birds, right? Like, like God is utterly sovereign over all things. Now you hear that and you think, well, my decisions, they don't matter. You know, it's just the determinism that Christians believe in. That's not the case either because what we see also God doing is that even though he is the ultimate cause of all things, he uses secondary causes to accomplish those purposes, right? So, so, so he's ultimate. He is, he is uh, uh, using these secondary uh, causes, even using sin, even using re rebellion to accomplish his uh, purposes. And yes, he used, he, we see this in Old Testament and New Testament. We see a lot of this in the prophets, where the prophets are saying to the people of God, God is sending the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians. He, he's in control of this country and this pagan king, and, and he's doing his bidding through these uh, folks that are sinning and rebelling uh, against God. And so over and over and over, we see this kind of uh, radical sovereignty. Um, we see it in the New Testament. One of the most interesting places in, is in regard to how the scripture talks about Judas, right? Uh, it says, when it was evening, this is Matthew 26, he reclined at table with the twelve, talking about Jesus, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who would betray him, answered, It is I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So there you see that, that, that tension between, uh, on one hand, is Judas responsible for his actions? Absolutely. On the other hand, somehow his actions are carrying out what God has written, right? What God has sovereignly decreed uh, for how things would play out in Jesus' death on the cross. And so God is the ultimate cause. And when uh, he is he's, he's accomplishing his purposes uh, through uh, secondary causes, even if those secondary causes are sinning and rebelling and doing things that are against God, that does not compromise God's holiness. Now, do I understand that? No. <laughs> I, I don't understand that. I just know this is what Scripture is, is declaring, that God is utterly sovereign. He is the ultimate cause of everything and uses secondary causes, even uh, sinful people, rebellious people, uh, even evil, to accomplish his uh, purposes. And again, Quite, quite the mystery. But, but this is part of what, what Solomon is getting at here when he is pointing to the radical sovereignty 
uh, of God. And so this is why he, he makes these kind of conclusions, like in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So that's, that's in line with that. Okay, look, God's, God's sovereign over everything. You can't change it. Okay, and, and again, he's, he's emphasizing sovereignty. He'll get to some other truths later. But here he's, he's saying, look, what, what, what is crooked is going to stay crooked. And, and what is lacking, uh, you, can't, you can't count it. You can't understand it, right? You just know something's not right. And there's this sense in which you have no control. Now, now for uh, the people in the West, that just drives us crazy, right? And, and we want to take control. We, we, we're going to make meaning out of our existence. Uh, and so the way Solomon is talking is very Eastern, which, look, the Bible is, is more Eastern than Western, if we're, if we're honest, right? And so it feels a little more Zen, right? Except this Zen is, is, is not this like uh, nebulous, impersonal kind of force out there. Uh, it's a personal God who has control of all things. And, he, and he's saying, relinquish that control. Re realize that these things are under the control of a sovereign uh, God. Now, this is a bit of a corrective uh, to wisdom tradition like, like Proverbs, right? Because Proverbs is that kind of common sense, you do this, you get this outcome, and we've been calling these kind of, sort of truisms, right? They're, they're generally true. Things like, for instance, Proverbs 12, 24. I think about this a lot. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. So it's like, okay, you work hard and you're going to rule. You're going to have influence. You're going to have power. But if you don't work hard, then you won't rule. You'll be ruled over, right? And so it's, it's very, very simple. Just work hard. It's, it's sort of the, the conservative answer to the problem of poverty, right? Well, if they just worked harder, they wouldn't be in poverty. Well, is, is there some truth to the fact that if we don't work hard, we'll end up in poverty? Absolutely. Is that the only thing that contributes to poverty? No, it's a lot more complex. And, and so this is part of what Ecclesiastes is helping us to do, is to take the common sense kind of uh, straightforward truisms of Proverbs and, and then put it in the framework of this real world that we live in and, and show us the complexity of that. And so he's letting us, he's letting us know uh, that, that while this is not always, we can't understand what's going on in life, God is sovereign over those things. He is in control uh, over those things. And it kind of puts a, li a limit on these uh, truisms that we can just grab onto and say, well, if I put this into the system, I will get this out of the system. And, and honestly, what we find is there's a lot of glitches in the system. And this is part of partly what Ecclesiastes is, is giving us, is, is how do you understand, how do you deal with these glitches? And one of these is the sovereignty uh, of God. And we'll get more to, to how that helps. Um, he, he, he critiques his own wisdom. And this is, again, why I think Ecclesiastes is, is trying to give some correction to maybe a misappropriation of the, the truisms of Proverbs and other wisdom literature. He says, I said in my heart I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So there, there he, he's critiquing the wisdom tradition. He's not, 
he's, he's not saying it's, it, it's going to be completely thrown out, okay? Because he's, he's going to return to the wisdom literature, to the truisms, and, and he is going to go back to those. But, but in this moment here, he, he's emphasizing the utter sovereignty of God and, and, and looking at the life under the sun and seeing the vanity that is, is there. Now, after he's kind of set that up, he then goes into three different experiments, that he does and so he he's exploring life under the sun in some different uh, categories and he's applying his wisdom and he's giving us conclusions about what he gathers uh, in his data collection in each of these experiments uh, so these three experiments are self-indulgence wisdom and work self-indulgence wisdom and work now the first experiment is self-indulgence and I'm not gonna read this uh, the, the passage that, that that includes this experiment because it's really long um, but do you see kind of a logical progression in this uh, passage here? And he starts off drinking wine uh, for, for pleasure, for, for meaning in life. Um, and, he, and, he, and he mentions that he's drinking this wine while his heart is guiding him. Uh, so some, some commentators are saying, so he's drinking wine not to get like totally sloshed and party every night. Uh, he's drinking wine like a connoisseur. And so he's enjoying different kinds of wines. He's planting vineyards. He's he, he, he's aging it at different times, and he, he's, 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 he's enjoying and vibing uh, the, the sophisticated kind of way of, uh, of experiencing wine. Then he says he built houses, and he was a builder. He was a designer. Like the, uh, Solomon very much was an artist, and so he, he builds these and designs these beautiful homes. He works the land both for beauty and for uh, agriculture. There, there's parks and gardens and vineyards and orchards. Um, he even comes up with an ancient sprinkler system, right? He's, he's got like water sources that are coming into to these beautiful gardens and agriculture and watering these. Um, he has slaves. He has uh, all these slaves that are working all of his properties. And, and uh, again, we see something like this. It, the Bible's not advocating slavery. It's, it's merely describing what he's doing. And here at the end of this, he's, he's going to declare what uh, this all meant to him. Um, there's herds and flocks, so he's got some nice cuts of meat. He's got some really rich milk for his diet. Uh, he's got lots of extra resources like silver and gold in the bank uh, to maintain everything that he's built and even expand it if he feels like he needs to expand what he's doing. Uh, he's even got music. There was no Spotify at that time. I didn't know if you realized that, but um, he had to bring in both men and women singers, and he kind of had this choir that was on retainer at all times that would sing to him. And so what would, what would be, you know, a self-indulgent life without some great music? And then concubines, right? He has these sex slaves that are merely for his sexual enjoyment. Again, we see this. This is, just being, this is being described. This is not being prescribed. as something that is, that is okay. Um, but he is describing this, this path that he went down into uh, and explored with his inexhaustible resources to see if he could find meaning uh, in life. And at this point, the description seems very much like an ancient king would talk. Uh, you can find a lot of this in the ancient world of kings going on and on about their exploits and their building programs and all the things that they did. And I mean, I know politicians don't do this now where, you know, they, they like uh, give overblown kind of descriptions of what they do. But, but in the ancient world, that, that was uh, what, what was happening. And there, you can find lots of monuments that kings make to themselves and they write all this stuff out. And you think as you're reading this, this is what Solomon's doing. He's like, I'm so amazing. I built all this stuff. And, 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 and then it turns in verse 11. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done 
and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, think of that. Just a politician or a king, a monarch, going through all of these things that they've done and then saying, you know what, that was meaningless. That was a waste of my time. This is what Solomon is doing. And so I think we, you know, we would hear him say that and we would push back and we say, you know what, Solomon, the reason that that was so meaningless to you is because you were behaving foolishly, right? Like, like the whole concubine thing and the slave thing and just self-indulgence. I mean, come on, all that stuff for yourself. Like, of course you were unhappy. That's not how you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live wisely. And then Solomon would say, I tried that too. This is the next experiment. He says, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. And so he says, okay, you, you say I should live wisely, and then I'll get some meaning. And uh, he, he says, okay, I tried that. I was a good little boy. Um, I decided there is actually more gain in wise living than foolish living. Uh, I opened up my book of Proverbs. I read a, uh, you know, a chapter every day of the month, and I did everything that it said. I, I did what was right. I made some money. I put it in savings. I gave to the United Way. Uh, and then you know what happened? You die. And I look over, and I see the fool that didn't do any of that stuff. They die. Wise die. Fool die. This is vanity. And then you say, well, yeah, but, but Solomon, you can leave a legacy. Right? We talked about this last week. Like, oh, you can leave a legacy for your kids. And, and he's like, no, you can't. There's no, it, no one remembers. No one remembers how wise I was. And, and I try to pass this on to my family, and they don't even listen. Uh, Sol Solomon seems pretty grieved by this, right? He says uh, so in verse 17, so I hated life. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. So he said, I, I tried self-indulgence. It was empty. I tried wisdom. It was empty. Uh, and I think we might say, you know what you need, Solomon? You need a job. You know, you need a good job. You need to dust yourself off. You need to get up. You need to get your good job, make some meaning out of your life by making some kind of productive work. I mean, surely at that point you would feel like you, you've got some meaning. And so Solomon says, back to you, I tried that too, right? Verses 18 through 23, I, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used by wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity, a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart of which he toils beneath the sun? 
for all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he's like, I tried the whole get a job thing. The work was vanity. And you say, well, yeah, but you, you can acquire some wealth. You can leave that to your kids. And he'd say, well, yeah, but my, my kids could grow up fools and totally waste all the wealth that I've acquired. And indeed, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will be a fool and he will waste all that Solomon has worked hard uh, to accomplish. And, and, he, and, he's, and he's like, one of the most vain things about this is that even while I was working and toiling, I couldn't enjoy the very thing that I was working and toiling for. And he even mentions he couldn't even sleep at night, right? And so Solomon seems, as he's experimenting, he seems to be spiraling, right? He, he's, he earlier was saying, I hate my life. Uh, now he's saying, I gave my heart up to despair. My days are full of vexation and, and sorrow. This is not just a bad day or two. This is a, sort of a, a lifestyle of depression that he's experiencing as he spirals down in these, these experiments. And, and the reason is because he's finding them totally vain. He's like, I tried self-indulgence, vanity. I, I tried wisdom, vanity. I tried hard work, and it was vanity. Now listen to the preacher. Listen, listen to, to Solomon. He's pointing out the crutches that we're using to prop our lives up and to convince ourselves that we have meaning. But not only is he, is he revealing those crutches, he's kicking those crutches out from under us. And so we're, we're standing there after reading this and we're sort of wobbling <laughs> because these crutches have been completely removed from propping us up. And then he says this, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So look, look at what he's doing here. He tells us that God is utter, utterly sovereign. And then he goes down these three experiments. And through these three experiments, he takes us up on the edge of the cliff of despair to the point where we're hating life, our, our, we're full of sorrow and vexation. And as, as we're looking over the cliff of despair, we're like, okay, I guess we just got to jump over the cliff of despair. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you something else about God. God is good. <laughs> God is good. This one who is utterly sovereign over all things, good and bad, is the one whose hand is delivering the good in this life. Every perfect... Every, every perfect gift, <laughs> as James says in the New Testament, comes from the Father of lights, right? And he's letting us know, not only is he fully in control, but this, this, this sovereign God is a good God. And he's, he's giving the good things in this life to us through his control. And this is good news, right? Because if he's good but not sovereign, he can't deliver, Right? He, he can have some sentiment. He goes, man, I just wish I could help these people, but I just can't. But, but if he's sovereign and he's not good, that is cause for great fear, great trembling. We, we should just kind of jump over the cliff of despair. But he is both. He is both sovereign and he's good. This, this is known as providence, right? Providence, the same root as words like provision, like that God is, is in control, but he uses his control for good. 
And when we, when we think about sovereignty and good, we, we, we have this word, providence, that, that kind of brings those two things uh, together. And he says, if you have the perspective of providence, this is, and this is what he's trying to give us, is the perspective of providence, then the good things in this life can be received not as something that we grasped, but something that we were given. And this, this is repeated, I think, six times throughout Ecclesiastes. If you have the perspective of providence, you no longer look at the, the good things in your life as something you grasp. I earned this. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. No, no more of that. And instead, these things are gifts from God. And, and when you understand them as gifts from God, you can enjoy them. <laughs> And suddenly this life under the sun, because it's being, in, it's being experienced as life under heaven, can actually be enjoyed. Even though there are many things about this life that are complex, hard to understand, seemingly vanity. But because they're being looked at from under heaven, we can enjoy the good things that have been given to us by God. And again, this... This is to keep us from thinking that our wisdom is a fail-safe, right? Because we should live wisely. I mean, absolutely, there, there, there's so many reasons why you should take Proverbs and do exactly what Proverbs says. But don't treat it like a fail-safe, like a, like, a, like a formula. That if I do this, then God must do this for me. That, that's not how it works. And, and so instead, this, this God who is absolutely, utterly sovereign, who is also good, is the one who's giving us good gifts and we can receive them as such. That, that real vanity, the ultimate vanity, is to live a life apart from this sovereign good God. And that's what he says here in verse 25. From apart from him, talking about God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner who is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So you see what he's doing there. He, he, he's been saying, under, life under the sun, it's vanity, 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 vanity. He pulls the lid off. Life under heaven, oh, actually, you can enjoy this. But if you live life apart from the one who is in heaven, you will experience only vanity in this world and in this life to come. So, how do, how do we respond to this? I think there's some different ways. I think for some of you, you are at the end of your experimental rope. You may have gone down these ropes, right? I mean, you kind of see this in, in, in your 20s oftentimes, right? You show up as a freshman in college and you kind of go down the, the road of self-indulgence. Like, mom and dad, don't tell me what to do anymore. I'm going to drink. I'm going to date. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. And then you're just like, wow, that was not quite what I thought it was. And then you're like, you know what? I've got to really buckle down. I've got to get a degree. I'm, I'm going to get some training. I'm going to get this wisdom and knowledge, and, and that's what's going to give me meaning, right? And you get to the end of the, the degree, and you're like, wow, I, I still haven't found meaning. You're like, well, I've got to get the job. If I get the job, then, then I'll work really hard, and, and, and I'll, I'll, get to, I'll acquire some wealth. And, and then you get to the job, and you're like, man, this, this is vanity. Oh, I need another job, or uh, I need a, a marriage, or kids, or and on and on and on it, it goes. And and so listen, listen to the preacher. L listen to Solomon as as he lets you know that if all you're looking for meaning is is in this life under the sun, you're going to find yourself in a bottomless pit of despair. You you're going to be in in a in a complete life of meaningless. 
this. And so he, he's pushing you beyond the sun. <laughs> he's pushing you beyond the sun. Allow Solomon to be your mentor. <laughs> Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, look, I've, I've tried it all. I've explored it all. I've had inexhaustible resources. I, I've explored this life under the sun. And I'm telling you, it's vanity. And he's pushing you to life beyond the sun. Um, I think for, for those who you, you know, you believe in what I'm, I'm saying here. You believe God's sovereign. You believe he's good. Um, this is a good reminder of reality, right? Because we can so easily begin to live life as if all there is is what we can see. We can become functional atheists. And we need to be reminded on a consistent basis. I mean, this is partly why we come together to worship together on a weekly basis, right? That, that, that no, we live life under heaven. That, that's the ultimate source of all things, the ultimate cause of, of all things. And, and so uh, to be reminded, God hasn't lost control of the universe. No matter how bad things get or what, th what things are happening in the larger world or in my own personal life, God has not lost control and that God is good. I mean, this is what verses like Romans 8, 28 are getting at, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And see what Paul's doing there. He's, he's letting you know. All things are working together for your good. Like the sovereign God has not lost control of your life. And he's working those things out towards a good purpose. The ultimate display of his sovereignty and his good, obviously, is, is the cross of Christ. I mean, think about it. Like the night before he dies, uh, he's being betrayed by Judas. Uh, he's being deserted by his disciples. He's being falsely accused. He's being illegally tried. He's being beaten and tortured unjustly. He's being crucified on a cross to the point of death. And we would see the divine Son of God going through that and say, This is vanity. This is crazy. How, how can a good God allow this to happen? And that good God would say, oh, no, <laughs> you don't understand. I'm in complete control. This is actually the means by which I'm saving the universe. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And we go, oh, oh, this one who is sovereign is also good. And so this is what we put our hope in. This is what we put our trust in to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled with the one true God, the one who is in heaven, who is sovereignly and in a good way, ruling all things to an end, to a purpose, both in our life personally, but also in the entire universe. So let's put our hope in that this morning, whether for the first time that you're trusting in Christ this morning or yet again in a fresh way. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you needing this reminder that you are in absolute control and that you are good. And we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We, we can know that, be, not because our circumstances are always perfect according to our definition, uh, but because we can look back at the cross. And we can see what was seemingly out of your control absolutely happened as it was written. And so we, we marvel at that God. And we don't always understand it. We, we definitely look at this world and its complexity and we, we, we can't figure out all the ins and outs, but we don't have to. 
because we know the one who knows all the ins and outs and is carrying it to its ultimate purpose. And so we're so grateful for that this morning and that reminder. And we pray, Lord, that, that you, would, you would just uh, implant that in our hearts, Lord. We need it to the very depths of our hearts such that we can stand on that as we move through the complexities of this life. And we thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon and uh, how it is helping us, Lord. And we pray it would continue as we read this book and learn from it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.